It's great having the kids in here. Yeah, I was reminded again of how, um, how they prayed, the founding members of the church, how they prayed for kids. And now we have over 100 kids, uh, little kids, in our church each Sunday morning, which is really exciting. And they get to come in here and worship. I know it takes up seats, though, and I know how desperately you guys want to sit as close as you can. <laughs> I know that. And listen, it's okay. Um, I want to begin with prayer one more time. Uh, this is a great passage in the scripture that we're going to be studying. We're going to continue uh, for this week looking at Jesus. We're going to have a new series coming up, but uh, we're going to look at the teaching of Jesus, but I want to pray first, if you wouldn't mind praying with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you. I pray, would you please fill me with your spirit and gift me with the gift of teaching for your namesake. And would you soften our hearts and would you prepare us? We know that we, are, we need you and we depend on you. And uh, for each one of us, there comes a moment when we need you so desperately. And I know some people in this room are already in that place right now. We pray, would you grow us in our faith? And would you use what you did? And uh, would you use your word? Spirit, would you come alongside your word uh, to grow us and to draw us to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About a year ago, it's kind of the anniversary for me. About a year ago, uh, Courtney, and, and I know nearly all of you know this, Courtney had a, a brain tumor. And, um, and we finally got the surgery scheduled because, you know, brain tumors, they don't do it very quickly. And so there was months and months of preparation and scans and all kinds of stuff until they were finally ready. And uh, last August, she, uh, she went into surgery and she got the brain tumor removed. And uh, man, recovery for that was really, uh, really tough. Uh, her body just wasn't functioning like our bodies normally function. And uh, you could see it. You, you could look at her not having any medical training as soon as you see her, you know something is, uh, is really wrong. Something's really wrong, and she's not healthy, and she's not okay. And we got through the first week of recovery, which was really difficult. And, um, but then a couple weeks later, she started having complications, really weird complications. And it was about this time, maybe it was a month after, it was about this time of the year, and uh, in the middle of the night, it was obvious we, we need to take her to the doctors. I have to take her to the emergency room. So we drive to the emergency room, and back then they still have COVID procedures and, and policies, and they wouldn't let me in. I couldn't even walk into the emergency room with her. I had to basically drop her off, which felt so odd. And uh, I know I've shared this story before, but it's so vivid in my mind, that moment. I remember her walking out of the van, and my whole body just felt anxious. I felt anxious because I was like, I want to go with her. This makes no sense that I'm not going with her. Why would they not let me go with her? And she, she walks through the doors. She's not feeling well. She goes through the doors, and I just have to leave to go home because we have kids, and I need to get back home. And so I couldn't. I couldn't just drive out of the parking lot. So I park into one of the spots, knowing I'm not going in there, because, you know, who wants a, you know, pastor of grace, 
goes to prison because he ran into the, you know. So we didn't want that. And so I'm, I park in the parking lot because I didn't know what to do. Have you ever had one of the, those moments as an adult where you genuinely feel just stuck? I don't know what to do. I'm a grown adult. I understand the rules and the laws. I have no idea what to do. Anything feels wrong. And um, because I'm a crier, I'm sitting there crying. Tears are falling down my cheeks. And I start praying. And I remember thinking, Lord, I know that you can do anything you want to do. But what scares me right now is I don't know what you want to do. I don't know what's going to happen. And then I started thinking about some of the worst things that could happen. And it just got worse. I'm sitting there, van idling, and, and it's just I can feel myself becoming more and more anxious and un, unhealthy just inside, internally. My mind was just really struggling. And I realized in that moment, where is my faith? Like, where is my trust? What am I trusting in? What am I believing on and in? And uh, I realized that I was tested, that my faith was tested in that moment because I knew, you know, God, you could, but I don't think you're going to, and I think what's going to happen is going to happen, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I think this bad thing's going to happen. And my mind just rambles because of doubt and unbelief. I don't know if your mind ever rambles because of doubt and unbelief. It's, it's, you wouldn't write it down, and you wouldn't want to share it with a big group of people, how <laughs> uh, lack of faith you had. But I was just struggling, and uh, I realized in that moment as I was talking to him and just telling him everything, just pouring out my heart to him, because that's, that's what he did, and that's what I've learned from him. So I'm just pouring out my heart. This is what's going on. Nevertheless, your will be done. I want this to not be what it seems like. Please let this cut pass from us, but your will be done. And I'm praying these things. And I, re I remember feeling convicted. Do I really believe that me coming to him in prayer is going to change anything? Do I really believe that? Not, am I supposed to believe that? Not, is it the right answer to believe that? I mean, do I personally in that moment believe that my prayer makes a difference because he says it does, and he wants me to pray to him, and he hears our prayers. Do I believe that deeply in my heart? And so uh, I, was, I probably sat there for 30 minutes. I actually, I did sit there for 30 minutes and uh, just praying and pouring out my heart. I couldn't drive. I couldn't get out. I was afraid I was going to get in a wreck. I just didn't feel like I was normal. And uh, f eventually I went home. But I remember my faith being really tested. Do I trust God in prayer, do I believe that as I come to him with these things? Do I believe in what he's going to do? I don't know what, he's, what he will do. By the way, that's a really interesting fact about faith. Faith is not always what God will do. There are times like that. And here's how I memorize it from Scripture. This is how I think about it. I use a couple of verses. Uh, this isn't really part of the sermon, but this is important. There are certain things that God will do, and you have to have faith in it. Whatever he said he will do, whatever promises he made, he will do that. And so faith on the will he do it, if it's based on what he said, to have a true faith in God, you have to believe he will do what he says. That's what faith is. If you don't believe he'll do what he says, that is not faith. 
Then there's the God can do certain things. There are certain things we pray for that God never promised. There are certain things like, will she be healed? There's nowhere in Scripture that says you're not going to experience suffering. You won't die and things will go fine and everything you ask will just be given to you. That is not, that is not written in the Scriptures. And so there are certain things that God can do, but He doesn't always do them. And so when I was praying and what I do now, I think, what is the difference? Is this a will do or can do? Because my faith changes based on that. If it's a will do because of what He said, I'm going to do it. Will for word, W for word. If he said it in his word, it's going to happen. If it's he can do, there's a probability that he may not. And he may choose not to, and it's his own wisdom and his own decision. So I was praying in that moment, trying to decipher, what do I know God will do? I know God will not leave me. He won't forsake me. He hears my prayers. He wants me to pour out my heart to him. This is how I grow in my faith with him. That's what he will do. So I knew I was growing in that moment, even though I felt lost. What he can do is he could totally heal Courtney. He could totally heal her. He could make it to where she comes out of there and everything that her body needs to have is going to have and anything that doesn't belong in there won't be in there. I knew that that was true. The will do and the can do. And there's a story in the New Testament where, Jesus te- or where a man's faith is tested in that way. What will God do and what can God do? And it was actually not even a very religious guy, not a Jew anyway. He wasn't a Jew. And Jesus has used this story, I think this has been used so many times, this faith of a man that wasn't even a Jewish man uh, had a certain kind of faith in God about what will happen and what can happen. And that's what I want to look at with you because this has always been an encouragement to me and it's scripture. That's why we're looking at it in Luke chapter 7. So Jesus had an encounter with a man whose faith was tested and the question is, how do, we, how do we have a strong faith? How do we know if our faith is where it needs to be? Uh, we can look at three characteristics in this centurion's faith and, and see if that's our faith. So I'm going to read through the story first, just so you have a background of the story, and then we'll walk through it. In Luke chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had concluded saying all this, And a lot of people refer to his sermons on the mount and his teaching around Galilee, particularly the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching in Galilee around this time. That's where most people think this is. When he had concluded saying all those things, so Jesus is done teaching, which is really interesting. Jesus is done, and I I need to stop preaching. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll preach. Okay. They were listening. Anyway, when he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him. So this is a different group. He sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. 
I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. I say, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, heard what the man and friends had told him, when Jesus heard this, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, followed him, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. There's a lot to learn from this passage, but just for this morning, I want us to see there are three characteristics of a great faith. At the very end, and I think it's in verse 10, if you want to show verse 10 on there, that last slide that we had, he said when those, the, the slide before that we were on, uh, verse 10, there it is, when those who had been sent returned to the house, uh, they found the servant well. Verse 9, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. So Jesus was amazed at the centurion because of his faith. And he tells them, so great a faith, he has not found so great a faith even in Israel. So how, what made his faith so great? Why did Jesus look at this man's faith and, and was amazed? There's only two times that Jesus marvels in the New Testament. This is one of them. The other time, he actually was amazed because of a lack of faith. This one, he's amazed at a, at a presence of faith. And the question is, why, what made Jesus so astonished? Why was he so amazed at this man's faith? Because if we want our faith to grow, if we want a great faith, it's got to have some characteristics of what this man's faith is. And so what does it take to have a great faith? Uh, if we commit to building these three characteristics in our lives... Our faith will grow is my position toward this. So what, what does this man's faith look like? First, let me set up the story. So when Jesus had, concluding, had concluded saying all this to the people, and it, it, your different translations may say teaching. There's different translations on this. The reason is Jesus was just finished teaching what we think of as the Sermon on the Mount. And, the, and as he was teaching, everybody was listening to him, and then he left. He was done teaching. Class was over. He had been with them for multiple days. He had been preaching to them for many days. There was a whole multitude. And at the end of his teaching, he's like, okay, I'm done. And then he goes to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is a great place because it's uh, great in the New Testament. It's well known because this is where Peter is from. This is uh, where Jesus stayed quite often. He would be there, and it's on the, north shore, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I have a picture there. I tried to highlight it in red. If you look at uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret, it looks like an upside-down teardrop. And at the very northern shore, there's Capernaum. Now, this was a really famous town because it was a, it was a fishing town, and it was where you could go fishing in Galilee. You bring all your fish to this one town, and a lot of uh, people come through the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea, and through the King's Highway. They will stop at Capernaum to get whatever fresh fish and different things they can find in Capernaum and do trade there. So Capernaum was a really cool town because it was a trading town. And uh, I actually went to go... I went to Israel back in 2019, and one of my favorite pictures in the world is actually uh, me sitting on the, the coast right there. That's me looking uh, toward the Sea of Galilee. There's me in Capernaum, and uh, someone else actually took that. Well, obviously, someone else took that picture of me. <laughs> uh, that felt a little dumb, sorry. Uh, of course, someone else did. But that's one of my favorite pictures. Um, it's me. I, was, I remember being in that spot and praying because I knew how much work 
God did in Peter's life in this very town. Many days, multiple years. Uh, Jesus did a big work, and Jesus did a lot of things in Capernaum. He did, he did a lot of cool things. Anyway, they, if you go there now, uh, they made a bronze statue of Peter uh, because this is his hometown. So the picture in the middle is really hard to see on this screen. It's beautiful if you can see it in, in vivid color. There's a bronze statue. It's super heavy. It's on this stone, and it's a, it's a statue of Peter. Uh, they call Capernaum Capharnaum, and that's just a language deal. That's not a big deal. And that picture on the right side, that's actually what they think of this is where Peter's house is his exact house was. And so they didn't mark this spot until the fourth century, but a lot of people think this was Peter's house. Who knows? But it's just cool. They put a cathedral over it, and that's the bottom part, and that's like the foundation of his, his house. So anyway, so Jesus goes to Capernaum because that, that was a spot for him. That was a regular spot that he would go to, Peter's hometown. And a centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. And so... Uh, you know what a centurion is. It's a Roman soldier, a centurion, kind of like century. It's a soldier that's over about 100 men. It would be between 80 and 100 men normally. And centurions had at least about 80 to 100 soldiers under them. They also had servants. And don't think of servants just like slaves, just random things. It was a structure. It was an organization. So he had men working for him that you know performed particular tasks. So one of his servants was really important to him, highly valued by him, and he was sick and about to die. And, um, and there's a picture on the left of a drawing of a centurion. I wanted to show that hat because the only difference between a Roman soldier and a centurion, other than their pay, centurions got paid like 20 times the amount that a regular soldier would, but they had a hat where either it looks like a mohawk, depending on your depiction of history and what you think it's supposed to be, and they, the people argue about this. Like, they have real arguments. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, it's either like that, like a fan, or it looks like a mohawk. Uh, that's how you would identify a centurion. That was like their uniform that was special to them. And according to Polybius, he wrote a history's book, Early Centuries, in, uh, in book number six, in passage number 24, he writes about the Roman centurions, and he says that centurions were uh, selected among the soldiers based on their merit, and they couldn't be young. So there were different classes of Roman soldiers, and the centurion had to be someone who was not very young. So an equivalent would be like elder in the church. That idea of we don't want someone too young, um, even though that's debatable how young is too young. But you don't want someone too young. And so they would make it to where a centurion had to be middle-aged or older because they wanted to pick someone that the men would follow. And he had to have good merit. He had to do good works. It wasn't that he was the best fighter. It was that he was the most respected. That's what was important to them. And so uh, every, every centurion held a seat in the military council so every centurion was not only over 100 soldiers, but they were somewhat of an elected official to make decisions based uh, uh, in their region. And so they would hold a seat on a military council. They had councils like boards we have today. And so, uh, so that's a centurion. And a centurion, his regular daily duties, he would oversee drills for his men like a drill sergeant. So in the field, outside of the field, he would have them run, train. Uh, he would inspect their armor, their weapons, their food, their clothing. A centurion, what's really neat as I study this, 
A centurion is like a shepherd, almost identical, except a centurion is a shepherd of soldiers. A shepherd is a shepherd of sheep. And they're actually, in history, they're known the centurions were really honorable. If you look in the New Testament, centurions are mentioned five different times. Now, I know there's, if you, you know, if you do a word study, I know the word comes up more than that. But five different times centurions are talked about. Uh, two times in the Gospels, this is one of them. And then at the end, where Jesus is on the cross and the centurion uh, sticks the spear in his side, uh, that's the second time. The third time is Acts chapter 10. It's the only named centurion. It's Cornelius, where Cornelius sent for Peter to come to his house. He was the Gentile, the first Gentile convert kind of idea. And then you have two separate times where centurions are talked about uh, when they arrest Paul and then when they, at the very end when they take Paul to Rome in the book of Acts. And so every single time that the centurions are written about, every time, they're written about in an honorable, respectable way. So even the Jews respected the centurions. They're respectable men. They're elder quality. They care for their soldiers. And because Israel was occupied by the Romans, they had authority over the Jewish people. So this centurion had a servant that he really cared about. And the reason, one of the reasons why this could be written this way is because he doesn't have to care about any of them. A centurion has authority over them. He doesn't have to have a personal relationship with his servants. But this man does. He cares about a servant, and he's highly valued. So this is the kind of boss you want to work for. Uh, he cares deeply for his servants. And then verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. Now, why did he not just send any of his servants? The reason why is he respected the Jews. And since Jesus was a Jew, he was called a rabbi. He was considered a Jewish teacher. The Roman centurion wanted to send Jewish leaders out of respect and familiarity with Jesus. He wasn't sending his soldiers to him to demand that he come. He wanted to be respectful and request that he come. And so he sent the Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save his the life of his servant. Now, this is where the qualities come in, and this is where the teaching comes in. Why did this man believe that Jesus could heal a servant? I mean, what centurions in the Bible have faith? Almost all of them that are mentioned, but that doesn't mean all the centurions in that day had faith. He believed that Jesus could actually heal his servant. Well, Jesus has already been in this region. He's already been teaching in Galilee. So at some point, this centurion heard about the teachings and the workings, the healings, the mighty works of Jesus, and he believed. He heard about it and he believed. And this is what it takes to have a great faith, which is point number one. A great faith begins with hearing. It begins with hearing. If you want to grow in your faith you need to hear the message of Jesus. You need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible on a regular basis. You need to be listening to God. Your faith will not grow if you're not hearing God. The reason why this centurion had faith, it says it, it's explicit. When he heard about Jesus, then he sent. So he hears about Jesus. He had already heard about Jesus. That's why he believed he could heal his servant. So this man, even though he wasn't Jewish, was hearing the stories and believing. He put his faith in Jesus through hearing. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it's a popular verse. It says, So faith comes from what is heard, 
and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Faith comes through hearing the word. And so if we're going to grow in our faith, we've got to hear the word. So a question is, and I ask this question a lot because it's a relevant question that I think the Bible continues to pose to each one of us. What are we listening to? What are you listening to? Whether it's on the radio, on TV, on social media, what are you constantly hearing? That is going to affect your faith. How often are you in the Bible? How often are you reading the Scriptures? Uh, I think it was a couple years ago, our Habits of Grace, we talked about the Scriptures and we played a video. It was based off of a, a Pew Research study. Barna has also recently done a new study uh, that I'd have to get access to. It costs money now. Barna costs money, which is great. They're doing a great work. They're super smart people. Uh, I just haven't subscribed yet. But Barna did a recent research that I caught a little tail end. I haven't seen all the details. But they did a research about, um, about people reading the Bible. If you read the Bible once a week or twice a week or even three times a week, your faith is almost no different than your peer who does not go to church and doesn't read their Bible. Your faith is almost no different. That's what they found out through real data. But if you read the Bible four times or more per week, so four days or more each week, there is a spike and an exponential growth of your faith and trust and hope and peace and a number of other markers that they use. The Barna Research, I think, asked about 80 questions. Um, but your faith grows tremendously if you spend more of your week. That's the magic. The magic number isn't four, but four days out of seven, four is more than half of seven. The idea is if you commit your life to more of your days taking in God's word, your faith will grow. That's what data shows, but the word of God makes it clear. That's the only way your faith is going to grow. And so he hears about it, and this was, this was the beginning of his great faith. He heard and believed, and so we've got to be listening to stuff that, that draws us to God. We need to be listening to His Word. The opposite is true. How often do you listen to stuff that draws you away from God? I have to be really careful with this because I was taught in graduate school, you have to read the opposing side. You can never write a paper, you can't have an argument until you listen to the opposing side. And I know that sounds really like, oh, that sounds... It's actually, I think it's true. I've noticed in my own life, I have grown more in wisdom by understanding and listening to the other side. It's also helped me in marriage. There's many other situations. You just listen to the other side, understand. It is genuinely helpful. And you laugh because you're guilty. That's why you laugh. Okay. So how often are you listening to stuff that draws you away from God's Word? And be honest. Be honest with yourself. If you want a great faith that's going to hold you in the midst of every storm and going to draw you to God, you want to, know, you want to know that you trust in Him, how often are you hearing and believing? If you don't hear enough, there's nothing for you to believe in. You're just going to be drawn away uh, by the world. The second characteristic that's shown in this, man, this centurion, a great faith approaches God with humility. A great faith, you want your faith to grow approach God humbly, have a humble faith. So in verse 4, when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, it's so great that God included this in his inspired word. 
You know what's really ironic about these Jewish teachers, these Jewish leaders? They want Jesus to do this great work. Why? Because of what the centurion has done for them. He's worthy. This is a good guy. I mean, have you ever prayed and been like, this person's a good person. Why is this bad thing happening to them? Let it be good. If you've ever prayed because you thought they were good, you're just like these Jewish leaders. I've done this. I've, I've done this recently. They wanted Jesus to heal them because of how worthy he was. Now, the irony is it's the very opposite reason why Jesus heals them. <laughs> it's the very opposite. But it's shown. You see the contrast vividly in the story. He's worthy. This is a good man. You should totally heal him. A lot of people approach God and they have expectations out of him. Here's why you should meet my demands. Here's why you should answer my prayers. Here's why you need to do what I think you need to do. And it's clear in the story this is the opposite of what God teaches us. The opposite of the direction God wants us to go. They said he loves our nation. They're saying he loves the Jewish people. God's people. That He loves God's people. And He built us a synagogue. I actually went to this synagogue. You can go to this synagogue. There's, I think, maybe pictures up there of the synagogue. There they are. That left side, that's the columns uh, on the, that's actually the east side of the synagogue, which is not the original part. On the right picture, though, it's really hard to see because of lighting, and that's my fault. You see that white limestone? Right below that, where those steps are, there's dark basalt stone. It looks like black stone. That's the original first century synagogue that this centurion built. It's right there in Capernaum. It's marked and known. Uh, they found little houses around it and underneath it, actually. They would have little places like basements for some of the Jews to stay in and maybe for them to, to store their stuff. Uh, but that synagogue you could go to today, right now. You could walk there. And what's really great about this, some of you are more like history buffs and you love science and you want to, can we trust the Bible? Uh, this was uncovered after the, the bottom part, the basalt part, after uh, the 15th century. Now, they built, the 4th century, they built that top limestone part. There was this lady, her name, we'll just call her Helen, she went through a lot of uh, Israel and started uh, re basically renovating a bunch of holy sites uh, for spiritual and military governmental reasons. But this was one of the sites, and they put a lot of effort toward keeping this up. And you could go there today. Courtney and I went there. What was really cool about that place is the Jews even now believe that that basalt uh, first floor level was Jesus was at that very synagogue. That was the synagogue that Peter would go to. Peter probably went there as a boy. And uh, so anyway, I just showed it to you because I thought it was cool. Um, the synagogue that was written about is still there today. Not the same exact walls, but the foundation is. And so a great faith approaches with humility. So they tell him about the centurion, and then verse 6 in Luke 7, Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Now, this is where we could try to read between the lines, but we only focus on what the scripture says. There's a couple of ways that this could have happened. It could have been the Jews are there and the centurion's Roman soldiers are there at the first. They come to him and the Jews are like, this man's worthy, he's awesome. And the, center, the, the soldiers who are very... By the way, if you go to war with each other and battle with, with each other, you're best buds. 
These are like closely tied men. They might have heard the Jews saying how worthy he was, and they went back because the centurion's not far from here. You can actually walk from Peter. It's like 137 feet. You can walk from Peter's house to this, uh, to this synagogue. It's in the same small town. It's very close to each other. Uh, they might have gone back to the centurion and said, hey, the Jewish leaders are talking you up a good game, and they're like, you're worthy, and they, I think they're going to get it, Jesus to come. And this guy, out of humility, sends some friends back saying, listen, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not even worthy for you to walk in my home. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. So part of this man's great faith is, I am not worthy. I am not worthy for you to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to heal my servant. You do not have to do this, and I don't deserve for you to do this. Faith, a lot of times, is cut. The legs are cut under faith by pride. When people pray, this person deserves it, and God, I don't know why you let bad things happen, and this shouldn't happen, and you should do this, and this, that is the opposite of the kind of faith that God wants us to have. And this centurion is showing what a great faith looks like through his humility. So think about your own prayer life. Do you ever pray, you know, I really deserve this and I really think this should happen and God, why would you do that? That is not faith. That, that is anxious expectation. God, you need to do this and that. That's the opposite of faith. That's demanding. That's requiring God to be someone and do something fitting in your box, not his. That's very, it's very proud and expectant to, to want God to do that. And so... He approaches God with humility. Um, and then number three, a great faith believes in the impossible and the unseen. What else is really evident in this centurion's faith is he believes in the impossible and he believes in something he's never seen before. No one has ever seen before. No one in his town has ever seen before. And not only is it uncommon, we have no historical record where something like this has ever happened in, ancient, in the ancient Middle East. There's no story that you could go to and say somebody from a far-off distance healed somebody else without going to them. All the healers, all the magicians, all the pretenders, all the snake, everyone was present. Everyone was there. Everyone performs their healings based on being there. So this centurion is having faith in something he's never heard of. He's never seen. It is literally, as far as he's concerned, it is impossible to happen. And so, so he tells him in verse 7, that is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to come to me in a conventional way that, you, that everyone else says they will. You don't need to touch me. I don't need to drink a potion. You don't have to perform any crazy ceremony. You just speak the word and it's going to happen. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, I read this before, Uh, It connects to this man's faith in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Faith is when you believe in something that you cannot see. It is not proven to you yet. Because if you just believe something that you're seeing, it's not faith. It's just you're seeing reality and you're observing it and responding to it. Faith is when it's unseen. For by this our ancestors were approved. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. God created the universe by speaking it into existence. He didn't have to wait a trillion years to see if it would happen. There was no chance involved with God creating. He just spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, I'm going to separate the waters from each other, and they separated. Just by his word, his command, his authority, he creates things out of nothing. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word, ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God created out of nothing. It's not like God had to go to the store, pick up materials, and then come to the universe and say, okay, now that I have this stuff, I'm going to make something out of it, like we would. We can only make out of what is already there, but God can make out of nothing. And so... By faith, we believe that God spoke everything into existence. What kind of authority does that give God? What kind of power does that give God? That's the, the point of the centurion's faith. He says, you just speak the word and it will happen. That centurion, Hebrews 11, didn't exist yet. Hebrews 11 wasn't written. He was believing off of what he heard of Jesus, that Jesus was representative of God, and God created everything out of nothing, which is what the Jews believe. And so, he made what is seen from what is not seen, uh, is the actual words, what's not seen. And then verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did, and by faith, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts, and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. So, he brings up the faith of Cain and Abel, or not of Cain, but of Abel. And then in verse 6, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you don't trust God and respect his authority and power, you can't please him. Now, this is a big uh, theme and a teaching in the church. Do we please God? Are there moments when we please God and when we don't please God? Now, you don't want to try to please God to make him love you because that's the opposite of what's true. You don't try to make God happy so that he'll like you, because that's opposite of what the Bible teaches us. He already loves us. But there is a sense in which you can please God. I remember when I was, in, uh, I was on college break, and I worked in, on a beef farm, and the man owned a, a big farm, and I would go running on Saturdays. And Saturday morning, we didn't have to work because uh, Mr. Powell didn't make us work on Saturdays. And so I would go running, and uh, I would run past the fields, and there weren't a bunch of houses. This is like farmland in the Delta in Mississippi. If you've ever been to the Delta in Mississippi, how hot and humid and horrible it is. It's a dry and thirsty land that's void of God. And so I would run, and uh, there would be these cows that would be on the fences. And every time I ran past these cows, they were so nosy. They would not mind their own business. As soon as I would come by, they would come toward the fence. They'd stare at me with their big, crazy, ugly faces, and they would watch me the whole time. So I felt bad about thinking they were ugly, and then we became friends, and I talked to them while I ran by. And I remember one time I'm talking to them, and sometimes I'd bring an apple, and I'd feed them an apple because apparently cows like apples. And um, I was running by, fed the cows some apples, and uh, I was laughing at myself because I was silly. I'm just silly, and sometimes I laugh at myself, and I was talking out loud to myself and making jokes, and I can't believe I'm talking to these cows, and, you know, no one will ever know this. This is so crazy. Uh, so I'm talking to these cows. I start laughing at myself, and I started thinking about God, and I thought, you know, I wish I could make you laugh. 
I wish I could make you laugh. I feel like you make me laugh all the time. Every time I need joy in my life, I think about Jesus' love for me. He's with me. I think he's humorous. He's got to be. He's, he's got to be. He made laughter. I just think about him and his personality, and I say, you know what? I don't know you fully yet. You're still part of you. You're a mystery to me. There's so much more to you than I know. But I know that you laugh. At some point, you've laughed. I wish I could make you laugh. And that whole run, I remember that Saturday vividly, that whole Saturday I was praying, God, I know I'll never amount to much. I know I'm not going to do big things. I'm not going to be super popular. But if I could make you smile, that would be my heart's desire. And um, I thought of this verse eventually. I don't know when. I don't know all the details. But I remember that Saturday, and I remember looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and I remember thinking, hey, we can please you. We can bring a smile to your your face. And what you say it takes is faith, just trusting you, just believing that you will do everything you say you're going to do and you can do anything you want to do, and just leaving it there. God does not have to, nor will he do everything I ask him to do, but God can do anything he wants to do, and God will do everything he said he will do. And that's the kind of faith that is great. That's why Jesus marveled at this guy, because he said, you just say the word, You just say it. It's going to happen. I know what you can do. You are an authority. In verse 8, he says, For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so the centurion was saying, I understand your authority. You have full power and authority. You could speak into existence whatever you want. You don't even have to come to my house. You don't have to do anything some other healer needs to do. You just say the word, you're the boss. You're in charge. And when Jesus heard this, verse 9, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. And that statement just calls to my heart. I read that and I say, I want to have a great faith like that. I want my faith to be so strong in you. It's the only thing Jesus marveled at. I want my faith to be so strong in you that it's amazing, not because of me, but because of you. And so I wrote this poem. I'm not a writer. I'm not a poem writer. There's a thousand things wrong with this. I'm not, obviously, I don't have published work, so no judgment. You guys can laugh if you want, but be kind. I wrote this poem thinking about this faith, and it's just based off of Amazing Grace. Um, I titled it Amazing Faith, and obviously that's not super creative, but it's Amazing Faith. And I wrote this. I wanted to share it with you as we end. Amazing faith, how sweet the sound that brought me to my knees. I heard the news of Christ the King, and now I do believe. I don't deserve the grace he gives. He knows I'm only dust. Yet every time I look to him, his love rebuilds my trust. I don't understand it all just yet. Life's still a mystery. But every time I close my eyes, the Spirit helps me see. Amazing faith, how sweet the sound that keeps me close to him. I once had doubts, but now I found he's worth the trust I give. I want my faith to grow. I want to have a great faith. This centurion, he believed there was no boundary for him. And uh, 
Faith pleases God. That's what pleases Him. And uh, let's pray together as a church family that God will grow our faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And uh, your love, your grace, the hope we have in you, uh, we'll never tire of celebrating it and praising you. We thank you so much. Would you be with us as a church family? Help our faith to grow. Would you help us as a church family as we commit time to hearing your word, listening to it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, analyzing it, sharing it with our friends, sharing it with our own souls as we, as we preach to ourselves to, to trust you and to remember you. Would you help our faith to grow? And would you help us to pass on the faith? We know that it's your mission to make disciples, to reach the next generations, to show them who you are and what you've done. Help us not end our lives with regret. Would you strengthen our church family that we would truly be light and salt in this community and that we would be passing on the faith. We love you. We know that with you all things are possible. And there is no boundary to your ability. And so we dedicate our church to you, our lives to you. Would you help us this week uh, to grow in our faith? We love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember, we are the church. The faith that people see, they're not just going to come here. They're going to see through your lives. So go be the church. Grace, we are sent.